Well, as I reflect upon my ministry at Rock Valley Bible Church, um, you know, one of the things I think is a theme in my own heart is just uh, pushing you all to be a giving people. Now, by giving, I don't simply mean um, just giving to uh, Rock Valley Bible Church for us as a church to grow and flourish and, and be really good. I, I'm talking about just giving yourself, like, like giving all of who you are to others. Now, certainly it's reflected in financial giving, right? But over the years, I, I've not really pushed you to give to Rock Valley Bible Church, per se. I've been criticized, actually, by how little we speak about giving to the church here at Rock Valley Bible Church. Um, but I just encourage you to be one who gives, right? If you give to Rock Valley Bible Church, great, right? We can have our services here. We can, we can press on. But if you give to some mer- missionaries, personally missionaries that you know of, right, totally apart from our church, that is wonderful. You are being a giver. That is great. Uh, whether it's supporting orphans in foreign lands, uh, whether supporting widows of, of some way, as Darren prayed for first love, uh, whether it's cash in hand to your hurting neighbor who is not even a believer, or whether it's leaving groceries at the, the doorstep of, of someone, I, I'm encouraged you to be givers, not, not even just to what you have, but even of, of who you are, uh, like time and talents. If, if someone has a need and you have a talent, I, I'm encouraged you to be a giver and give of your talent and give of your time to help them. It's a, it's a church, right? We have really sought to model giving uh, to others. You know, currently more than 20% of what we give as a church is given out to missions globally and locally. And I've said many times this pulpit, we would love to see that increase to half. Half of what you give would go out to um, missions and support them. And this, even Darren prayed for those mission organizations today. And as a result of that, we've sacrificed some comforts at our church um, because we save about 10% of our, our church budget right off the top just to save for future things like projects. And we have remodeled our, our auditorium here. It's wonderful. Remodeled out there, but that's come slowly. Our next big project is the, um, the, um, the parking lot, which I think, Andy, have you called it like roller coaster bump, speed bumps, like constant speed bumps? We, moguls, right? Our, our parking lot filled with moguls. We've, we've got some quotes from that, and, um, you know, the, the finances are, are there, and we will do that, I, I think, next year, perhaps. Um, at some point, we're going to get that done. But the reason it's taken long is because we've tried to live well below our means as a church, and not to overspend. Every dollar that's given, we don't feel any need, just we have to go and spend that. We have put financial status for you as, as much as possible, try to be super transparent, Right now, we're giving 21% to, to global missions, to missions local, global. Just what that's coming in is just going out. Uh, 10% we're saving for growth, 1% to adoption. That's just saving up to be able to give to somebody who, who is looking to adopt a, at some point. But you can even see in that last column there, we're not trying to spend every dollar to the church. And, um, you know, the church, what we've done is try to just be intentional. And, and, you know, this isn't some great thing, right? If we give us a church, think about it. So, you know, I'm, I'm not big on a tithe 10%. I think grace calls us to abound in that. Um, but just think, even if you give 10%, that means that we give to missions 21%. That means we're giving 2% of our income to missions through the church. It's not something to really pat ourselves on the, on the back about. But it is mostly just for a model of how we live as a church for all you, how I would encourage you to live. Live in this way, right? Just uh, give away a good portion of your income 
whatever you can afford. Save for the future and then live below your means. These three words, right? Kids, give, save, and live. Give first. Give your first fruits away. Save, right, so that you can have resources for that, the, the catastrophe that comes, for the future event that you need it for, and then live and live below your means. And, and I'm encouraging you this way because I think it's the best way. It's for your good. It's for our good as a church is to live below our means. It's more blessed to give than to receive is what Jesus said. When you're in a place where you have resources, you can give them. It's more blessed to be in that way. Well, as we come to our text this morning, we're going to see a giving church. We're going to see a church in Antioch be generous to give her the resources to help others in distress. The title of my message this morning is appropriately, Antioch, a giving church. From Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, you can open your Bibles there if you haven't already. Uh, Acts chapter 11. Uh, we, we began in, in Acts chapter 11 last week by looking at the church in Antioch in uh, verse 19. Um, in fact, last week, the title of my message was Antioch, a great church. And in many ways, this week, Antioch, a giving church, is really just one more point to my, my message last week. And um, really, it's like a, like a part two, if you will, or it's an it's a eighth and final point to my, my message this week. Uh, so what I'd like to do is just even review my message from last week, Antioch, a great church. Remember what made it great was that there were many witnesses there at the church, right? We saw that last week in verse 19, Acts eleven nineteen. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. Now, one of the things I didn't do last week, which I, I hope to do this week, is to kind of give you just a, a, an understanding about where these places are. I mean, if we talked about Madison, Wisconsin, we talked about Chicago, like we would know how far and what sort of direction all of these things are. The key places here in verse 19 are Jerusalem and Antioch. Jerusalem is, is there in the south. You can see it there. Uh, Antioch is there in the north um, by way of the, the way the crow flies, about 300 miles away. Right, so just kind of that's that's where it is for us, 300 miles, but we can drive that in just a few hours. But for them, it took several days or weeks to travel there by by foot, maybe a week or two, kind of the distance of how how far that was. Um, But the people mentioned in verse 19 who went about preaching, um, preaching the word were those who were scattered because of the persecution that rose over Stephen. If you look in verse 19, they scattered out to these different regions. One is to Phoenicia, which is a region north of Samaria, and then uh, north even of that, up to Phoenicia. Uh, they also went to the island there of Cyprus, where they went. And they also, as it mentions here, they went to Antioch, which then becomes the focus of our text. And verse 19 says, they're speaking the word to no one except the Jews. And last time I, I spoke about how these people were speaking and uh, um, you know, these weren't the apostles. The apostles remained in Jerusalem. It was the people who scattered, right? The, the common folk of the church and the strength of the church in Antioch was you had these many witnesses of people who were just average people in the church, not leaders of any sense, just going out and preaching the word. And we will be great as a church as well as we open our mouths and speak with others about Jesus. And I think to the extent that we do is to the extent that our church will be, will be great. Well, in verse 20, we read more of these witnesses. There are some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. And I call these men daring witnesses because they were bold and did a daring thing, speaking the gospel to Greeks. 
It, it took a, a divine revelation to get Peter to speak the gospel to the Greeks. Um, and it simply took these people, just understanding God's grace to the nations, God's grace to all, even to the Greeks, to then go and speak to those in Antioch. I'm calling these men daring witnesses. And if you see where these men came, they came from Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyprus is the island that was mentioned there in verse 19. And, and Cyrene is way over um, in, in northern Africa, southwest of the island of Crete even. And, and all coming to Antioch then to to preach the Lord Jesus. And great things were happening at Antioch. We read in verse 21 that the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. This was God's hand in Antioch. See, God gives repentance and he gave repentance to those in Antioch. So there were many there who turned to the Lord. And we should see in the book of Acts, right, God's hand Right, really, really pushing beyond Antioch. In fact, from Antioch then will become the, the launch of uh, the missions movement worldwide. Uh, th- this is from this, this place, right here is, is, is Antioch. From this place in Antioch becomes the first prayed for and planned missionary journey ever taken by the church. I mean, before it was just kind of people scattering, going on. But this, they, they really prayed and they just said, God, what we have us to do? And we see in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, where where the Spirit said, verse 3, verse 2, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called them. Here is the Holy Spirit in answering to their fasting and praying and ministering to the Lord. He said, send these men out. And, and so they did. This map here is basically a, a map of the first missionary journey. You don't need to know the details. But, but they start off and they went down and they went to Cyprus, which is where Barnabas was from. And, and then they continued on, went to Pamphylia and up to the city in Antioch and then to Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, and then retraced that and returned back to Antioch. But the point is here is the first missionary journey in the Bible, in the world, from a Christian perspective, comes from Antioch, goes out, and then comes back to Antioch. And you see the hand of the Lord in sending them out in Acts chapter 14 and verse 27. We, we see again the hand of the Lord. And when they arrived and they gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. That was God's hand on Paul and Barnabas as they went out. God was opening up doors for the Gentiles. That was God's hand on the church at, in Antioch. And then here's a, a picture of the second missionary journey. And the point here again is, is not their travels. Right, but, but it is how the journey begins and ends in, in Antioch. And you see them beginning off, heading up north to Cilicia. And, and then you see them crossing over into Macedonia and Achaia, planting a church in Corinth and spending some time in Ephesus and finally coming down to Caesarea and uh, Jerusalem and then finally again returning back to uh, Antioch. And this, is, this has taken several years in order to, to take this journey. They spent 18 months there in Corinth. But the Lord was with them the entire time, guiding them in visions, right? They, they wanted to go to Asia, but the Spirit presented, prevented them. And they wanted to go to Bithynia, but God said no. And then this, this vision comes from Macedonia. It says, you go to Macedonia. And, and while in Philippi, God opened the heart of Lydia. Like God opening, or taking her heart and opening it up so she believed the things that Paul was speaking. And then protecting Paul in Corinth. Paul was, was persecuted in Corinth like it was in every city. He was ready to leave, but God said, no, no, you stay here because I have many people in this city. And you need to stay here. And so he spent some time there, 18 months. It all began and ended in Antioch. And it says in chapter 18 and verse 23 that they spent some time in Antioch. We don't know what some time meant. A couple months, 
a couple years, we don't even know. But they geared up to go again, and here was the third missionary journey. They, they took off. And this, again, was the hand of the Lord. And this journey took well over three years because he was in Ephesus alone for three years with, with the people there. And uh, I suspect that as he went, I mean, you can kind of see how he, he, was, he was going up and over and then kind of around visiting all the places where he'd been and planted churches. I think he was planning to go down to Jerusalem and then planning to go back to Antioch like he had the second missionary journey. But he was captured in the temple, arrested, and then tried, brought to Caesarea. And then his, his fourth journey took him from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. And from here, right, when we start to see this around chapter 20 or so, that Antioch just fades from history in terms of playing a crucial role in the building up of the church of Christ. God did great things for this church. It was God's hand. And they were a strong church, but they were, they were a great church not because they were strong in themselves, but they re, re received outside support. Remember, the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to help them. Verse 22, and the report, this report... The report of this, right, the activity in Antioch, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. <laughs> so he traveled from Jerusalem up to Antioch. And, and this is outside support. And Barnabas is the perfect guy in the church because he, as I said, was one of the humble builders of the church. He came with encouragement. He came with faith. He came in humility. Verse 23, <clears throat> and when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. He rejoiced at what God was doing in Antioch. He wasn't critical. He wasn't trying to change things. He just encouraged them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. It says in Acts, 24, or Acts 11, 24, that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. That he was a good man. He was a humble man. And we see that particularly in verse 25 when, when he goes to Tarsus to get Saul and bring him back. And if you notice on the map where Tarsus is, he's, he's going up and around and he's going to Tarsus to get his, his beloved friend, the Apostle Paul. On the map, 70, 80 miles, whatever. But Barnabas was more than willing to get others, more gifted than himself, to build the church in Antioch. The, the ministry was not just Barnabas' ministry. Barnabas held it with an open hand and said, Oh, Saul, Paul would be very helpful here in Antioch. And so the church in Antioch thrived with gifted teachers we see that in verse 26. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with a church and taught a great many people. Paul and Barnabas, right? What a team. To teach for a whole year. Great many people in Antioch. And, and, and these two men are the men that God used in Antioch to make this such a, a great church. Because after a year in Antioch, teaching and equipping all the believers, Paul and Barnabas, the best that there were in Antioch, then left and went out on all these missionary journeys to spread the gospel. And I'm greatly looking forward when we look through the book of Acts just to, to see all the different ways in which Paul and Barnabas, they go out, are, are proclaiming the gospel. And they say things like this in Acts 13, verse 38, speaking to the church in Sydney and Antioch. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And the next Sabbath, they begged that, that he might come and tell them these same things. The next Sabbath, almost a whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And he was able to speak and preach about how the gospel of Christ has even come to the Gentiles. The Gentiles rejoiced. Or when Paul was at Lystra, these people were worshiping as gods. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes. And when they, these pagan people, then he boiled down the gospel. These people had, were godless. 
He says, we bring you the good news that you should turn from these vain things, from these idols, to serve the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. Turn from these idols and serve the Lord, was the call there in uh, Lystra to the Philippian jailer. Simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and all your house. Just the gospel goes out. This is the sort of things they said. In, in Thessalonica, in Acts 17, verse 3, they, they talked about proving to the, the Jews there in the synagogue how it was necessary that Christ would suffer and rise from the dead. Saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Right? Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited one from the Old Testament who has come, and he's the one that you must believe in. And, and his death was not an accident, but he needed to die and rise again from the dead. And to the men of Athens, these erudite scholars... He said, God has overlooked the time of ignorance. Like you guys think you're so smart, but you're, you're ignorant. And he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness through a man, Jesus, whom he has raised from the dead. And, and, and that brought some to faith. And some hated Paul even more because of that statement about raising from the dead. <laughs> people don't raise from the dead. What are you talking about? That doesn't happen. Such rich words await us in the book of Acts. I say, may we believe them and may we proclaim them at Rock Valley Bible Church. Well, finally, last week we saw in verse 26, just a, a last point, that the name of the disciples, it says in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And I explained last week, this was not a name that the disciples came up from themselves to say, oh, we should call ourselves Christians, Christ followers. These are the names that other people called them. And it was sort of a derogatory name, like the Christians, the one who followed Christ, very equivalent to our word Jesus freaks. It's what the world often calls those who are on fire for Jesus. Really a derogatory term from their standpoint, but one that we will gladly take to ourselves. And uh, we will be great at Rock Valley Bible Church to the extent that we are Jesus freaks, to the extent that we are known as Christians, as Jesus freaks, crazy about this Christ, this follower of this Christ. We're followers of Jesus. Well, there's one more characteristic in the church of Antioch that we didn't look at last week. Because I just wanted to spend some time on that. Really, it's an eighth quality of the church. I'm calling it giving hearts. And now we're ready to read our text this morning. But I trust the review has been good. Verse 27. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And I hope that's there in your mind that you can even see, right? From Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his own ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders of Jerusalem by the hand of Paul and Barnabas. The title of my message this morning is Acts Antioch, A Giving Church. My first point comes from verses 27 and 28. I'm simply calling it prophecy. This is the, the prophecy that came from the mouth of Agabus. Now, if you look, he came down from Jerusalem just like Barnabas did to give further aid to the church. But, but he wasn't the only one. If, if you look again at verse 27, you see that the prophets plural came down. That is more than just one. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem and Antioch. And by the way, the, they, they came down, right? You, you, you look at the map, and it looks, like, uh, it, it looks like they went north. Let's see, where does it go? It looks like, well, anyway, it looks like they went north. They, they go up. But Jerusalem's on the hill, and so everything's coming down from Jerusalem. And so they came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. 
And prophets did, not just Agabus, but many. This is because in the early days of the church, prophets played a crucial role in guiding the church. Because there was no testament, no New Testament, no book of Acts. Because the book of Acts was being written at this time. So they didn't have the book of Acts. They didn't understand missionary journeys. They didn't understand how to proclaim the gospel so well. There was, was no book of Acts to inspire us of God's working through His Spirit in the world because it was being written. And, and at this time, there was no Romans. There's no First or Second Corinthians. There was no church in Corinth at this time. There's no Galatians or Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians. Paul wrote those, three of those, anyway, from jail. And um, he wasn't in jail yet. He, he wrote Galatia as a part of his, his uh, first missionary journey. He hadn't gone out on his first missionary journey yet to write to those in Galatia. No First Thessalonians, no Second Thessalonians, no pastoral epistles. Paul had never met Timothy even, didn't know Titus. There was no Philemon. They, they didn't exist because Paul hadn't written them yet. James is probably the earliest epistle, may have been written right about this time, but certainly was not distributed all across the way. Hebrews, we don't know who wrote that or exactly when that was written, but it probably wasn't distributed this time. And Peter wrote his letters to the the scattered believers that Paul evangelized on his missionary journeys. But Paul hasn't been there yet, so there's no 1st and 2nd Peter. And 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Jude and Revelation, right, they're, they're all later as well. The church didn't have a Bible to use their authoritative guide like we do. Though they may have had some uh, gospel accounts that some people wrote down. They had eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus, but these men were in Jerusalem. These were the apostles, and everything was, was word of mouth. And so in those early days, God used prophets to guide the church and how it should function. And these men were crucial to the building of the church. Uh, I put there on the overhead Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul writes, The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So a a good picture of this would be right here. Apostles and prophets at the very foundation of the church. Of course, Jesus being the most important, the the cornerstone, that which sets the the gauge for the whole building. And every Christian is built on that foundation. Built somehow on the apostles. And built somehow then on someone, on someone, on someone, on someone, on someone. You might picture the church like this giant skyscraper with Jesus at the cornerstone at the root and the foundation, the apostles and the prophets. And everyone who's come to faith has come to faith through them somehow as this building is, is built up higher and higher and higher, tracing back our heritage. But just like we don't have apostles today who have seen, personally been sent out by Jesus Christ, I don't believe we have prophets today. And since they served a purpose in the early church to guide and direct it before the Scriptures, but there's not the purpose of that today. It's God's Word to guide us. We don't need prophets to instruct us in our way. And in verse 28, we see the, the prophets identified. His, his name is Agabus. He'll come up again in chapter 21, by the way. He prophesies what's going to happen to Paul as he enters Jerusalem. He took off his belt. He bound himself. He said, that's what's going to happen to you, Paul. And it happened exactly like he said. And it's because Agabus was a true prophet, one who could prophesy and tell of the future with 100% accuracy. You know, I I think many of the prophets in our day and age hardly prophesy 100% prophecy. Um, Avon, I remember you were in college and received a prophecy from a, a charismatic church one time and talked about prophecy over your life. And as I remember, Yvonne, it was something like, oh, you have such a godly grandmother and you're going to walk in that heritage, da-da-da-da-da. And your grandmother's godless, right? But that's the sort of thing that happens today. People prophesy, but they're wrong. And you don't happen to, bat, to wrong prophets in the Old Testament, right? If you missed one of your prophecies in the Old Testament, you would die. 
Deuteronomy 18, verse 20. The prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, I have not commanded him to speak. And who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord if the word does not come to pass or come true. That is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Don't be afraid of him. Just kill him. That's what a prophet is. A prophet is one percent who predicts 100% accuracy. And we see Agabus here, 100% accurate. And we even see that in verse 28. One of them named Agabus stood up, foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And then Luke adds, the author of the book of Acts, quick to say, this happened during the days, this took place during the days of Claudius. Luke says this really happened. What he prophesied really happens. It came to pass. There was a famine in the days of, of Claudius. Right? This really helps then date the, the book of, of Acts. Uh, Claudius reigned, as I, as I remember, some 13 years from A.D. 41 to A.D. 54. And, and this, this famine right here, as someone else, Josephus, said it actually did happen. He, he wrote around the time of Christ, after the time of Christ, and he was a historical reference, just a, a Jewish person, not a Christian, writing to what's happening. He said this, this famine took place in uh, A.D. 45. So it begins to help give you a little bit of a perspective of the book of Acts, right? We've been working through the book of Acts, right, from the, the beginning to now, right, A.D. 45. We're talking about 12 years, 15 years, something like that now. We've been from Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 12. But, but Josephus, right, he affirmed this, this uh, famine. He, he wrote this in his Antiquities, quote, a little before the beginning of the war, when Claudius was emperor of the Romans and Ishmael was our high priest, a great famine was come upon us. And then he goes on to describe about the results of the famine, how, how rare and expensive food was, and how the priests, even on the day of unleavened bread, did not even take a morsel. He said, not one of the priests was so hearty as to eat one of the crumbs of the bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, when you eat the unleavened bread... It was such a famine that they didn't, the priest didn't even eat it. On another occasion, Josephus spoke about some of the relief that was given to those in, in Jerusalem. About Helena, the, the king's mother, a Jewish proselyte, sought to provide help in the famine. Here's what Josephus writes, quote, Her coming was of a very great advantage to the people of Jerusalem. For whereas a famine did oppress them at that time, and many people died for want of what was necessary to procure food, Rude withal, Queen Helena and some sent some of her servants to Alexandria with money to buy a great quantity of corn, and others of them to Cyprus to bring back a cargo of dried figs. And as soon as they were come back and had brought these provisions, which was done very quickly, she distributed food to those who were in want of it, and left a most excellent memorial behind her of this benefaction which she bestowed on our whole nation. There was humanitarian need that that the queen, the king's mother just was so stirred by the famine and the hardship of people in Jerusalem that, that she sent out and got some food and, and brought it there. And that's exactly what the church in Antioch right, pledged to do. This was Luke's point. Like what, what Helena did in terms of providing relief to these Jewish Christians is, is, what, is what, what happened. And that's Luke's point. John Stott in his commentary said this, Luke's concern is not so much with the fulfillment of Agabus' prophecy, right? though he mentions it in verse 28, Luke's concern is with the generous response of Antioch's church. And that's what we see in verses 29 and 30. We see a generous response. I'm just calling it relief. 
And we read here in uh, 29. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And I love how quickly this church responded to the need. A straightforward reading of the text seems to indicate that the disciples in Antioch decided that they were going to give to Jerusalem about this famine when as yet there wasn't a famine yet. Agabus predicted and prophesied of this famine. There wasn't a famine yet, but they said, yep, we got to stir up. we got to get ready and so that we can give to this and probably even giving to it as the famine was happening because they had the, the prophecy of Agabus, which was so dependable and so enough for them to respond before the famine reared its ugly head. And, and, and you say, okay, so why did Antioch do this with Jerusalem? Why, why did they do it? Because those in Antioch were indebted to those in Jerusalem, right? Remember the map of, uh, of Antioch in the north and Jerusalem in the south? Christianity all started there. Jesus started there in Jerusalem. It's where he died. He died on the cross for our sins. We but believe we're made righteous. He died there and he was, he was buried there and he was resurrected from the dead right there in Jerusalem. And then that persecution upon Stephen that came, the, the, Gen, the Jewish people, believers, then scattered, who, who believed and trusted in Christ, and, and they scattered to Phoenicia and Cyprus and, and then to Antioch. And when, when they reached Antioch, the, the church saw a need, and not only these people going out from Jerusalem, but they sent one of their best to help them, Barnabas. They sent them intentionally to go up there. Verse 27, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, they, they went up there to, to help them. And the verse, I don't have it quite here. Yeah, verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to help him. Well, but you say not only that, but also Agabus. And and where did he come from? Look at verse 27 again. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. So it means that not not only did Barnabas come down to Antioch, but also you had... Agabus, and also you had a lot of prophets coming down to Antioch just to help that church there. Prophets were there. It wasn't Agabus, right? The steady stream, it seemed like the steady stream of people from Jerusalem to Antioch to help. And then wasn't it only fitting then for the church in Antioch to have a heart for the Jerusalem church when they're under distress? Antioch was just starting out. Jerusalem's helping them. Jerusalem's in distress, and Antioch then will turn around and do that. And the, the principles clearly stated what, what Darren read for us today in Romans 15, verse 27. If the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they are also to be of service to them in material blessings. See, the, the Gentiles in Antioch had been great recipients of spiritual blessings from Jerusalem, and that helped to make the church great. And it's only right for those in Antioch then to turn around and help physically and financially those in Jerusalem when they're in distress. You know, and I see this all the time. When, when people are impacted, impacted spiritually by, say, a, a church or some kind of ministry on the radio or the Internet, and there's opportunity to give, oftentimes something that's transformed their life, they will quickly give and help and support those ministries physically and financially because they say, I've been helped by this ministry I know that other people will be helped by this ministry as well, and I want to support that message to go on out. I mean, you show me how someone got saved, and I will show you what they support and they help and encourage. People are generous. That's what we we see here. We see those in Antioch being generous towards those in Jerusalem. And I, I know, I love how Luke describes his work in verse 29. The disciples determined everyone according to his ability 
to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Like they, they set their minds on it. They, they decided, they said, okay, they need help. Let's help them. And so everyone, according to his ability, that means some gave more and some gave less. Because those who gave more were able to give more and those who gave less were only able to give less. And so as you have ability, right? I'm just telling you as a pastor, if you have ability, give. Some of you may give more. Some of you may give less. Give. Not just to Rockville. Just give. Give to people. And that's the great application of this text. If Antioch's a giving church, they're a great church. One of the reasons they gave, we also need to give. You know, Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 9. It's a fighter's week works this week. I've been memorizing this the last couple of weeks. In 2 Corinthians 9. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That's what I've been working to memorize, these fighter verses. Just encourage you, just memorize these fighter verses with me. We're just starting to start today and go on. And here it perfectly intersects with us. Now, there, there are many times I suspect that many of you have even heard 1 Corinthians 9, verse 7 said, preaching in church, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, right? You need to give, right? And, and oftentimes in the, in the church, talk about how you need to give, right? Decide in your heart what you need to give and, and decide with a willing heart to give and then just place it when the offering box comes along, right? But you, you, you need to give, right? You need to decide to give. In fact, I was talking to someone um, just last week who was, was at a church and just the, the church just kind of pounded. You need to give to the church. What are you going to give? Turn in your pledge card. Get it done, right? And I'm not so much in the details about how much you give or who much you give to. I'm just saying give. But oftentimes this, this text, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, is, a, is a, a text where pastors get up and preach. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. He loves it when you give cheerfully. And so give to the church. The problem is that 2 Corinthians 9 isn't about giving to the church. It's about giving to missions. Exactly like what has taken place here. Right? When Paul is asking for money, when they decided to take up a collection, it wasn't for themselves so the church in Antioch could grow. It was for missions to help the church in Jerusalem. And so likewise, 2 Corinthians 9, right? when that's preached in a church, should not be preached about we need money at the church. It should be preached about how we need to give so we can go and send and help the nations far beyond. That's the proper application of that text. And in 2 Corinthians 9, he's actually in the church. Actually, it's very interesting to help the poor and needy in Jerusalem. Because what takes here in Acts chapter 11 is repeated. Not a famine in future days, but those Christians in Jerusalem facing hard times. Because the famine was in chapter 11, but, but later it's because of the hardships that a Christian faced in Jerusalem who would accept Jesus the Messiah. We've been praying over recent weeks since uh, I preached from Psalm 20 about praying for Afghanistan. We've been thinking about the, the believers in Afghanistan, right? Believing in Jesus in a Muslim nation and the believers that didn't have contact with the West, they weren't interpreters, um, right? They, maybe they don't even speak English, but they decided to take the name on their ID badge, I am a Christian, how, how, how vulnerable they are. I sent out some videos in the Weekly Word. I'm not sure how many of you watch those videos. It takes about 10 minutes to 
watch them. Paul Washer's explaining, he just in his Heart Cry Mission Society, he, through his mission, has some contacts with some people in Afghanistan. He says they're in grave danger. I can't share the details now about what we're going to try to do to get them out, but you just need to trust. And he said, what I love, he says, so send us money so we can get them out. He says, it's not about money. We got things, we got, we got people staged. It's all about prayer and praying that God would give a safe passage because the people there are in danger. And so likewise, the Christians in Jerusalem were in grave danger as well. They were viewed as, as traitors. And you remember when Saul was there, he was taking them, going door to door, right, ravaging the church, taking them, putting them in prison for believing in this Messiah. And, and certainly that persecution that, uh, that persecution that began in Acts chapter 7 certainly continued on. And, and the Christians were facing hardships, difficulty getting jobs, as, as they're viewed as, as people who are worshiping false gods and going after this Jesus, which is wrong and is not in alignment with the Old Testament. They'd be hard getting jobs. They'd be hard with support when they had troubles. It's not like the priests and the, the temple system was going to bend to their need to help them. Any help that the Christians were going to get in Jerusalem were from outside. And that's what, what Paul did in, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. He's, he's, he's calling people to raise up this, this contribution First uh, Corinthians chapter 16 says just every first day of the week, you just lay up a little bit, just a little bit, uh, just a little bit. You stockpile it so that when I come, I don't even have to ask for an offering. You've got it. You'll put it here, and then we'll bring it to help the, churches in, uh, the church in Jerusalem. And there it is. Give to others, not give so we can have a nice church building. That's what Paul did. He rallied the churches all around. And, and listen to what he said in 2 Corinthians 8 about the generosity of those in Macedonia. Macedonia is up there by, um, by uh, Philippi, up there by Thessalonica, uh, Berea, Athens. That's Macedonia. He said, we want you to know, brothers, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 4. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty... These in Macedonia are in extreme poverty, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, even beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. So they were giving not to Paul to support his own missionary, but they were giving to help those in Jerusalem because those in Jerusalem have been such a great spiritual blessing to them because they brought the gospel to them. They want to bring back physical help to them. Their heart was huge for those believers in Jerusalem because they, they owed it to them. They were the source of the gospel, and what else could they do but to help those in Jerusalem in the time of need? And, and the exhortation to Corinth was, was really the same, right? As, as those in Macedonia have abounded in giving to help those in Jerusalem, he said in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 7, but as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. You're just saying, you're excelling, just, just keep going, excel in your faith, in your speech, your not earnestness, in your love, in your passion. And then he says, right, clearly, right, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. <clears throat> as you give, you demonstrate your love is genuine. For you know the, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he is rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And the exhortation really to us is, is really the same. We're called to be givers, following after the way of our Lord, right? He was rich in heaven with all the glory, and he came down 
And he made himself poor. He divested himself of all these things. He gave himself to us. And and that's why Christianity is a giving religion, because we follow after our leader. And so I just encourage you, right? Look look at the leaders of religions and and how the leader is the people will follow. That's why Muslims are such violent people. It's because their leader was one who, who demanded his honor. But our leader is one who who took it upon himself and, and, and died upon the cross for our sins. Willingly, he gave it up because he was giving to us so he could give us life in that way. And that's what we're called to do. He died for all, Jesus, 2 Corinthians five fifteen. He died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Christ has died for us, therefore we should live for him and live for others. Now, Christianity is a, a giving religion. Because we follow our leader. And so I think about Rock Valley Bible Church, one of my, my biggest prayers for us is that we would be a giving church. In some ways modeling this church at Antioch, which was a, a giving church. Just, just giving out to others from what they had. So let's, let's pray that God would, would do this among us. Father, I, just, I just beg you and I plead for you that you would stir in our hearts, God, to be those who would be typified not by taking and amassing for ourselves our own fortunes, our own pleasures, God, but that our days would be spent with others needing help, that we would be servants to others, God, that we would give of our resources, give of whatever we have freely, freely you've received, freely you can give, even as we sang today. We, we must go, right? We must go to others, and, and just bring whatever is that, that we have. And just in grace and humility, give of what we have and share the gospel with others. Father, I pray that like this great church in Antioch, God, that you would help us in some small measure, in some small ways to be uh, like this church. God, I know we far fall far short and just would pray that today as we're reminded to be givers, that we would seek to give willingly and joyfully. God, understanding that we're building up treasures for ourselves in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy, where thieves will not break in or steal. And, and may we find our joy as where our treasure is, there will heart be also as we, as we place our treasure in different places. God, may our, our hearts will be there as, as we prayed for word partners and farms and, and prayed for uh, first love. God, our heart's there because that's where our treasure is. God, where we have given. Help us even individually to see how, how we can give. God, even kids, I pray that kids would learn God, just this, this aspect of how we need to live, to give first and save next and then live on the rest. God, that, that's what we see here. Just, just giving to the church in Jerusalem. God, and just living on the rest, whatever they could do. God, so be gracious to us and stir our hearts that we would be indeed a, a genuine church. And I pray, God, that we might reach 50%, 50% of, of what comes in as a church to be able to send out, to be able to help others. I, I would pray even for people in this congregation to give 50% of their income. God, that, that you would just create in us generosity, ability to do that. God, we have needs. You know our needs. God, but you know how good it is for us to give, how much blessed it is to give than to receive. So place us in a place of strength, God, that we might then be able to maximize that, not for ourselves, but for others. God, it's you who need to do that, and I pray that you would do that 
in our hearts and our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.